Welcome to the Functional Breeding Podcast. I'm Jessica Heckman, and I'm here interviewing folks about how to breed dogs for function and for health, behavioral and physical. This podcast is brought to you by the Functional Dog Collaborative, an organization founded to support the ethical breeding of healthy, behaviorally sound dogs. The FDC's goals include providing educational, social, and technical resources to breeders of both purebred and mixed breed dogs. You can find out more at functionalbreeding.org or at the Functional Breeding Facebook group, which we work hard to keep friendly and inclusive. I hope you have fun and learn something. Hi, friends. This episode is jointly released through the Functional Breeding Podcast and CogDog Radio, which is a podcast hosted by Sarah Stremming. Sarah is an internationally known dog behavior consultant with a special, special niche working with sports dogs. She consults at the Cognitive Canine, teaches online courses on dog behavior, and of course hosts the well-known Cog Dog Radio podcast. I sat down with Sarah to talk about fear periods. Do they exist? What do we know about them scientifically? What do we know about them anecdotally? And what do puppy raisers and breeders need to know about them? Well, hi, Sarah. I would normally say, welcome back to my podcast. And then you could say, welcome back to my podcast, because we're, <laughs> this is not one podcast episode. <laughs> no, because this is a crossover. So what that means is that no one's in charge here and anything could happen. <laughs> it's a free for all. It's total chaos. As it, as, uh, it is, as it is, when you and I. As our conversations go, normally go are. Off the cuff. <laughs> Yeah, so we'll try to be nicer. We'll try to not sit and say that everybody's a total idiot and we're the only people who know anything, like is what we normally say when we're talking privately, right? We would we would never say that privately. We would what never are you, say what are you talking like about? We would never say anything <laughs> like that. So, this is okay. one. I'm excited about this though. So, why don't you tell every why don't you say how this conversation began? Yeah, so I was Presenting at Ghana last weekend, which is the Golden Doodle Association of North America, um, some a bunch of breeders who really know their stuff. It was they were very high end breeders. I was honestly kind of expecting that there'd be a bunch of people who sort of were like, oh, I need to, you know, I need to figure out how to breed. And so I'll go to this conference to get some basic information. But it was people who already knew a lot. And I was talking, I give a talk called the biology of socialization. So I was I was talking about the biology of socialization and they were asking about fear periods and I said that there's no there's nothing in the scientific literature documenting fear periods and we'll talk about what we mean by fear fear periods but that there's no there's no studies describing them there's nothing out there documenting that they exist and I don't think they've really been looked at so that there's nothing saying they don't exist, but there's nothing saying they do exist. And everybody was very surprised by that. And I was telling you how surprised everybody was. And I said that I wasn't surprised that they were surprised. And that I was excited to talk to you about this because I feel as though when I give my opinions from my experience on fear periods because like you said we don't have the research that I want so what I have to fall back on is my experience um and the experience of my close colleagues who are kind of in my cabinet in behavior that's all I've got and when I look when I share those opinions 
it is one of the things that I like want to share from behind a shield because it is it's one of those things that people get really heated and angry with me about because it's um it's a really strongly held kind of I belief system. I, I'm not even sure what to call it. It's very strongly held by breeders for sure. Breeders get the most angry with me because I'm not a breeder, so how dare I speak on this? Which, yes, I don't have that evidence to draw from. And it's it's just generally, it's a heated issue. It's heated. So you and I don't shy away from that, so we're going to talk about it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I guess my position has been that I, I just am totally hands-off. So I've I've presented for groups that uh, for dog trainer groups that firmly believe and teach that there are no fear periods, that they are a total myth. And I'm like, that's fine. I can present to you and say that they are a total myth. And then I've presented to groups of dog breeders who firmly believe that they do exist and that they've seen them. And I'm like, that's fine. Um, You know, I've raised one puppy myself, so I don't feel like I have the depth of experience to draw on. I did not perceive what we would call a fear period in him. Um, that doesn't mean other dogs don't have it. Yeah. Yeah. So let's say we should probably do this. What? We should define it. Yes. That's what I was just going to say is what is it? Like, what do people mean when they say fear period? So why don't you define what people mean when they say fear period? Because I think you're better equipped to, to do that, honestly. Yeah. And then let me talk about what we actually have described scientifically, and I'll define that. Love it. Okay. This is why this is great for us to bring our different perspectives here. So what I believe people mean when they say fear period is a developmental period of increased sensitivity to stimuli and some people feel that it is an increased sensitivity to known stimuli and others feel that it is increased sensitivity to unknown novel stimuli so there's a disagreement there um and in general what i see it coming out as is oh it's these normal bouts of shyness or timidness, or increased fearful responses in a dog that are normal within kind of develop- certain developmental periods, and they'll label certain time frames in which they would expect it to show up. And some people will describe it as something that it could last two hours or two days, and others will describe it as something that could last for months at a time. So again, we're, we're really getting to the problem here when we try to define it, Right. This is why um, I didn't try. <laughs> yeah, and and so when I whenever I'm speaking with a professional who says the words fear period to me, I do stop and ask them to define it just so that they both I know what they're talking about. Um it happens to me frequently with um the triangular relationship actually that often occurs between myself, my client and their veterinarian or often their veterinary behaviorist um, is that then usually the client will come to me and say, well, during a fear period, X, Y, Z occurred. And then that will be in the notes from the veterinary behaviorist 
but then no one has asked the question what was what what is a fear period because it's one of these weird it's it's one of these things culturally that we're all kind of supposed to know what we're talking about except that nobody knows what we're talking about <laughs> yes like so, domestication or personality or, or what stress. is a breed <laughs> Or, or, a or a breed, breed. yes. Or what breed is a dog. breed? What is a breed? Oh, Try to define a breed. We'll save that for another yeah. day. Here's here's my favorite. There is a definition of species, and yet yeah. things that scientists call species don't fit that definition, and they're very comfortable with that, which I always find hilarious. Yep, yeah. that is interesting. Yep. Okay, so um, you okay. your turn. So, <laughs> right. So what science has? What science has looked at? What what some Canine researchers have looked at, and what has been looked at in other species as well, is um, what we might call the onset of fear. And so mm. when you're talking about a fear period, you're talking about there's there's some, what we would consider a baseline level of fear, and then there's an increased level of reactivity, which goes on for some period of time, and then presumably there's an end, so period ends, and then it goes back to the baseline, presumably. So this is not that. Um, this is when you look at a very, very young baby animal, and I don't know how many different kinds of animals, but we know that this is in rats and mice and dogs for sure. Um, a very, very young one, when it's first born, it doesn't have a startle response. Mm. And in rats, the startle response appears... Oh my God, I should have looked this up, but it's at like 14 days. Hmm. Um, or maybe it's 14 days in mice and 21 days in rats. I think that might be right. In dogs, the first research on this was published in, I want to say 2015. Um, we can put that paper in the show notes. Um, documenting that they looked at three different breeds and in cavaliers, the startle response appeared at around um, seven weeks. In Yorkies, it appeared around six weeks. And in German Shepherds, it appeared around five weeks. Okay. And so there's and there's lots we could talk about there, about the different oh, yeah. timing oh, yeah. to <laughs> breed personalities. But um, so what I'm so what is the best way of illustrating that was this paper had in the supplemental material, they had video. And so the way they documented this was they would set these tiny, tiny little puppies on the ground. And they had, as I recall, like drawn on the ground circles around them so that you could say, did the puppy leave the circle or not? And then they had a robotic duck. And they turned the duck on. And the duck, you know, toy duck would waddle past the puppy quacking. And prior to the onset of the startle response... The puppy didn't respond to the duck. And after the onset of the startle response, the puppy turned around and ran away from the duck. Okay. And so this is the appearance of that fear-related behavior. It doesn't, that is when you first see it. So it is not a fear period. It is the first beginnings of the animal being able to show fear. And they have also documented that cortisol levels rise when you have that startle response and prior to the animal being able to show the startle response it does not have typically a rise in cortisol levels even when shown a stimulus that you might expect to stress it out 
And in the way that I was taught about fear periods, one thing that I was taught is that there is one that will happen between seven and 10 weeks of age, which is right in the middle of the kind of identified what the Scott and Fuller research called a sensitive slash critical period, which is what we think of as the critical socialization period in dog training. So right in the middle of that, supposedly they go through what I was taught is called a fear imprint period. And I think the word imprint is kind of important there um, because what has been observed again, anecdotally by dog trainers and breeders is that during that time, they will go through a period in which they will be afraid of stuff they weren't afraid of yesterday. So it is known stimuli. So they will be, you know, outside uh, going potty and they saw the fire hydrant every single day the last week. But today the fire hydrant is a scary monster and I'm afraid of it now. Or um, really commonly that they will develop a big response to household items that they were exposed to before. So things like that. That is what's kind of interesting. Known, known to be. That's like if you talk to a group of breeders, they're all going to say, yeah. And then the breeders, also the experienced ones, are going to go, and in my breed and in my line, it happens at this point. And I know that it happens around seven weeks. Like they And they, they time yeah. when the puppies go home to make sure that it happens in the puppy – in the breeder's house and like there's so much that is done here surrounding that first one that first thing um that yeah, i don't think it i don't think it's founded in nothing but we don't have the information i wish we had right so i would like to say that what we are seeing in that first event is this onset of fear but what is interesting is that what how I have learned and how the onset of fear has been described previously is that it is specific to novel stimuli. So that in other right. words, if the puppy prior to the onset of fear saw the fire hydrant and was used to seeing the fire hydrant, oh, and then after the onset of fear, then saw the fire hydrant again, it's not novel. And so the puppy should right. not suddenly be afraid of something that it had known about before. So what I would expect is that between five and seven weeks, which is very close to you're saying seven to 10, close but not quite the same, right? I would expect between five and seven weeks that a breeder would see a puppy start to respond fearfully to novel stimuli, and they'd then have to make more of an effort. So um, in this very sort of technical language, what we say is that we make it um, not novel by attaching something familiar to it, which is actually the breeder or the person who's socializing the puppy walking over and putting their hand on it and being like, see, now I'm attached yeah. to it. It's fine, right? And breeders do talk about these as distinctly separate things that are happening, though. So so they separate um, the onset of fear from... Yes, yes. Oh, they so do. Okay, okay. Jane, Jane Lindquist, a.k.a. Jane Killian of Puppy Culture, talks about this extensively in Puppy Culture, where there is the startle period and this is what it's going to look like and this is roughly when it's going to happen and it is going to vary by breed and then she does talk about this seven to ten week somewhere in their situation that's going to be the fear period and the fear period is classified as um fear of known stuff that is sudden onset acute and it ends like it happens 
and then it's over the next day and you kind of ignore it. Like you don't try to be mod it. You don't try to change it. You don't try to do anything about it. You try to keep their world really calm until it's over and then it's over. That's also kind of generally known to be good advice. Here's the problem with that advice, which if you're a breeder and you're doing that for your litters and it's working fantastic for you, I don't think that's a problem. The problem is the advice of don't do anything then gets attached to somebody decides that their six-month-old dog is going through a fear period. And I'm putting that in quotations. And the advice is don't do anything. It's going to go away. And it absolutely does not go away. And you isolate the dog to try to not do anything. And it gets and everything snowballs and it gets a lot worse. And I have a long list of client dogs who were given that advice during adolescence. They, they were told by their dog trainer or their veterinary behaviorist or their veterinary or their behavior consultant. This is a fear period. It's the adolescent fear period. It's normal. It'll go away. Here's what I want you to do. And part of the advice is don't do much. Don't take the dog out. Don't expose them to anything. Four months later, the dog is, forgive my language, a reactive shit show. And <laughs> they send me the email and relay the story. And it is so tired. I've heard it so many times. Because all that happened then was their, you know, whatever they were going through in their hormonal development of being an adolescent was just kind of stagnated and not supported in the way that it should have been because it was labeled a fear period. So that's where I think we can get into trouble with this language. I don't think breeders that are saying, this is something I generally see in my lines and my puppies and this is how I respond to it are doing a bad job. I think they should keep doing what they're doing if it's working for them. I think dog trainers who are saying your six month old that's scared of stuff is just going through a fear period don't do anything about it are causing harm yeah that's fair it sounds like it doesn't sound reasonable to me biologically for there to be a natural thing that's a fear period that goes on for four months that's that's too no long and and i think most of the people sense. who talk about yeah i think most of the people who are talking about fear periods do recognize them as kind of sudden onset and something that ends Something that might last, although here's the problem. People say it's two to three days. Somebody else says it's two to three weeks. Somebody else gives the advice. it's not defined. Right, because it's not defined. Somebody else gives the advice, expects it to be over in two to three weeks, expects a call back, doesn't check back in with the client. It's three months later. The client didn't know because you didn't say this should end quickly. You just said it'll end. (laughs) So they just hung out (laughs) for three months. And... It is generally accepted, again, in the field that there is some kind of adolescent fear period that happens somewhere between, you know, the different articles that I found, which unfortunately, none of the articles online that I found had citations attached. So they just said six to 14. Right. They're blog posts for the most part. Or sometimes sometimes they're articles with like um, veterinary corporations, things like that. And it says six to 14 months. Most of them say six to 14 months. I was taught that there's going to be one around seven to 10 weeks. I was taught there's going to be another one between six and nine months. And I was taught there's going to be another one somewhere between 12 and 18 months. Mm. And again, no citations. This is just word of mouth what I was told by dog trainers who were raising me. Yeah. um, Well, and so those are, that's interesting. So the, 
the one that would start around six months is when puberty happens in a lot of I breeds. was going to say that's that's obviously the six that to nine sense. month range yep. is a sexual maturity thing in my opinion and not yep and the 12 to 16 is social maturity of course potentially right of course <laughs> we're re- we're having an insurge of hormones during one of them and then we're trying to figure out how to live and who to be in the other one, right? Like if we're talking about humans, (laughs) I'll just say that I was in a fear period from, I don't know, age 11 to 21. (laughs) Yeah. And and things kind of went off the rails right after that. So I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I was going to say, and then you were fine at 21. I don't know. No, I was not fine. I just was maybe. 29. (laughs) (laughs) It just maybe wasn't um, as afraid as I should have been. Other things were going on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm just remembering. So when Dash, it was like almost on Dash's six month birthday that we were doing tribal together. And, um, and I brought him, my friend, Harriet, she was lovely. We went and just practiced in her basement. Um, and we showed up and she was like, he's doing so well. I'm thinking maybe we can think about like the goal to be in the next few months, entering him in an online like novice thing. And I was like, great. And so we settled down to train him and he just looked at us like he had no clue what the ball was or what any of the cues meant. He was just like, it was, there was no one home. And we were like, well, <laughs> it's just like, just okay, kidding. There went today. your plans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so like, again, anecdotally and, and one little sidebar, as we joked about human fear periods, I do think it's always, always telling that if something supposedly only exists in dogs it's probably not real like if it only exists in this one species it's probably not real it's kind of like you know I, what where i usually bring this in is dog training methods and i'll say you know if this thing that you're doing seems to magically only work on dogs it's probably not what you think it is it's probably not you know the reality that you've accepted like you know, certain certain methods that we don't need to go into. But basically, if it's if it only exists in dogs, if it's only talked about in dogs, if it only seems to work in dogs or mm. it only, you know, then it's it's probably worth you looking at it with a closer eye. That's that's interesting. I'd never thought about it quite that way. Um, but from my perspective, so I teach a master's level course on the biology of behavior. And when we go over brain structures, I frequently have students saying they had no idea that the brain, the basic brain structures are the same in all mammals. They right. assumed there were just different structures that the dog brain, I mean, the dog brain is shaped like their olfactory lobe is a lot larger than ours and stuff like that. But it's rough. Like you can say, you know, there's a correlation for all the structures and they just didn't know how similarly everything was built. Yeah, there's that. There's, um, you know, I think oftentimes it's people will clap back at me saying if it only exists in dogs, it's probably not real. And they'll say, but look how interesting dogs are and how different they are from anything else and yada, yada. And like, yes, there's a lot of cool things about dogs that are unique. But um, saying, well, they're like this because they're domestic species, they're social species, they're designed to live alongside people. They're not the only ones that fit those three categories, though. And they are the old, they are so, you know, I'm not, (laughs) 
I am not by any means and nobody should mistake that I'm saying that dogs are the same as everything else and not interesting. Like they've been, I've had a one track mind since I was like two or three years old and it's the only thing I've cared about the entire time. Okay. So like, (laughs) I am not here saying that they're not unique and interesting, but if something like this, that seems to be biological in nature also seems to only happen in dogs we got to look really hard at it. And honest, maybe somebody who breeds domestic rabbits is like, no, no, it's in rabbits. Like, let us have it then. Yeah. Like, I, we'd like to well, hear so about it. But yeah, here's another question I'd like to ask is, would this would this be different in prey species versus predator species, right? So like when, when I'm talking about the onset of the startle response, we've studied it in... Um, you know, rodents and dogs, and they're both altricial, meaning that when they're Mm -hmm. born, they don't walk around and do things. Mm -hmm. I don't believe it's been studied in precocial species, but if you think about it, like a baby horse can get up and follow its mom within a couple hours. Is it able to startle in that first day? I haven't worked with day-old foals, but I bet you it is. I bet you it is. And I think that's probably really true. And so then we would be smart to look at, you know, if we were going to design a research study on fear periods, it'd be really cool if we could replicate it again and again in, what was the word that you used that they are? That means that they don't get up and walk immediately? Yes, in, uh, right, so altricial. Altricial um, species, so... Yeah, looking at it in other species would be cool. We love... And it's kind of remarkable, actually, how much research in rats and mice is directly applicable to basically everything. But um, big time in dogs. I mean, we see we a lot of dog raising practices like early neurological stimulation. I think people don't understand how deeply rooted in like things we learned from rats and mice they are. But can I just can I just myth bust here for a second, though, or potentially myth bust? Please. The one way in which one major way, the only way, one major way in which rodents and humans are different from dogs is in the type of placenta that they have and therefore in how much information is passed back and forth between the fetus and the mom. And the reason I say that is because there's been research in rodents and humans showing that females who are in the uterus with a male, another male fetus, can be somewhat masculinized and there's ways that they describe this. And then the question is, is this true of dogs? If you have a female puppy, a female fetus, and she has boys on either side of her, is that going to affect her? And the answer is, well, the research hasn't been done, but the placenta is different. And there's so the mechanism placenta, for sharing hormones. You and I have actually talked about this off record before because we were talking about something else. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's it's good that you bring it in because it probably really matters here. So what's a species that has the placenta? The, did you say the placental structure? What what did you say about it? Yeah. So there's there's three kinds of placentas. I think I said structure, but let me just be a little bit more specific about what I'm talking about. So so you have the fetus. It's physically contacting the placenta, which is, you know, its own organ that grows 
basically when the um when the embryo starts dividing part of it splits off to to grow into the placenta um so the embryo is physically touching the placenta the placenta is con- is is physically connected to the mom but how closely is the placenta connected to the mom so in rats and humans we call it a hemochorial type placenta it's the most invasive placenta and it basically means that where there would normally be maternal tissue that's that's basically gone and the outermost level of the embryo's tissues is in direct contact with maternal blood so the mom's blood flow is flowing right past embryonic tissues which well i'll explain what that means for us in a minute um the next level is endothelial corial meaning that there's i think one layer of tissue the endothelium one layer of tissue between the mom and the mom's blood and the baby's tissues and that is what we see in dogs and cats and other carnivores and there's probably other species too but i don't remember how they all fall out um and then the final one is epithelial corial and that is the one with the most layers between the embryo and the mom's blood um epithelial corial is what you see in like horses and cattle oh my god i'm so, so excited and curious evolutionarily about this so evolutionarily Horses and cattle want to give birth and be able to run. They don't want to bleed mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. So that's why there's uh, there's this more distinct separation. The trade-off is that they the mom doesn't get to give antibodies to the baby directly through the blood. So the trade-off is that if the baby doesn't get to nurse in that first couple hours and get that transfer of um, antibodies that prevents it from dying, it will die, which is why if, you know, when I was in the large animal hospital in veterinary school, we kept having foals and even creas brought in for um, failure of passive transfer, FPT, meaning they failed to nurse and we had to get antibodies into them because otherwise they would not have survived the couple of days. Um, so that is one approach. If you, you need to be able to run right away, you can't bleed, but the trade-off is you have to get that stuff through the blood. The next approach is dogs and cats, which are sort of intermediate. And so there's, yeah, you could bleed. Uh, that's okay because, you know, we're just, you know, we're going to be holed up. We don't have to run away right away. We have time to recover. So there's, we're going to get some information through to the baby, but it's also still really important for them to, to drink the milk. So it's that trade-off. Um, versus humans and rodents, why we have the same kind, you know, I suppose it goes back to how everybody's um, evolutionary tree looks. Humans and rodents, so you can bleed a lot when you give birth. It's dangerous. You could bleed out, right? Um, But you've transferred a whole lot of information to your baby. And so what that means is that humans and rodents, because there's that intermixing that if, if the baby is giving off some hormones, it can go into mom's blood and come right back into the next fetus. There's nothing stopping it. Um, dogs and cats have that layer. So it's, we don't believe that that one baby would produce, that one fetus would produce hormones and have it go out into the mom's blood and then come back in. We don't believe that that happens. I'd be interested to see studies. Um, and then of course you have horses and cattle who theoretically it shouldn't happen at all. 
Except for in cattle, there's the weird thing where the, if you have twins and they're male and female, they might just directly contact each other. Their blood vessels might intertwine directly. Um, why this is evolutionarily advantageous, I don't know. Um, and in that case, the female is is quite masculinized um, and is not able to give birth. But that's sort of a different a different approach. That's that's a whole other. Sorry, that was a big dump of information. <laughs> no, it was, but it's it spikes some curiosity in me regarding um, regarding dogs and. The stress of I think it's it's important and you and I have talked about it briefly before because of basically um, stress on the mother and while she is pregnant and how that um, how that might or might not transfer to the puppies and things like that. And what's interesting to me is looking at the differences then in the developmental periods Um that seem to be happening because in canines that have been observed, you can identify this, what Scott and Fuller called the critical period. It's just that it's different based on what canine species you're looking at. And it's Mm. identified basically by this period of time in which they're kind of deciding what's safe and what's not safe in their world. Let me just be specific for a second. So when you say canine Mm -hmm. species, you're talking about canid species. Are you like uh, coyotes versus dogs versus wolves? Is that what you're talking that about? That is what I'm... Yes, that's what I'm saying. Okay. Yes. Um, and so when I say if it only exists in dogs, we should look harder at it, I think that's where I may get that pushback. But this idea of a fear period in which the dog is just suddenly scared of stuff it knows about, stuff it should know about, is something that we don't know that much about. It seems to be anecdotally reported by breeders, pet owners, trainers. I believe that in dog training, usually we're not talking about this first one, this seven to 10 week one that is generally accepted as a thing by most breeders that you talk to. Although there are going to be breeders who are like, yeah, I'm sure that's a thing, but I don't see it in my puppies like that. That's real. Mm-hmm. Um And then there are breeders who, like, I know somebody who breeds Australian Shepherds who says, yeah, it happens in my puppies um, at this time. And so, therefore, I think I don't remember. It's seven and a half weeks or something like that. And so, therefore, they don't go home until nine weeks. I want that over with when they go home. So, like, this person sees it. They see it regularly and, therefore, make choices based on what they've seen. Um, Where I think it becomes a problem is describing changes that occur in your dog during while it is growing up as fear periods and saying it's normal it's going to go away rather than having like rather than being very proactive and aware of what you're looking at and I do think that the um off record thing that I said to you (laughs) was basically that I do believe that most of the time when people say fear period, they are describing a bad temperament and not a fear period. And they're afraid to say that. They don't want to say that. They don't want to label the dog in that way. If they say fear period, well, that means about, it could get better. You're not talking about the seven to ten week fear period at this point. You're talking about the six months. 
well, let's go into it because maybe I'm not, right? <laughs> maybe I am talking about both because um, while I am not going to say that this thing that breeders observe doesn't happen because I, I, there are too many of them that say it does. So while I would like better research, I'm not going to say it's not real. I know that the lines of dogs and the breeds of dogs who for which my experience is also that the temperaments are not always we'll just put it this way they're not service dog temperaments um they tend to be those are the people who are saying yes it happens it happens at this age it is pronounced this is when it's going on so sure let me ask it yeah let me ask it this way uh, are yeah. there specific breeds that you would list where there are breeders that you've talked to who've said they don't see the seven to ten week event? Yes, um, I'll list some of them, but again, don't come after me. Um, I'm asking you for the positive thing, not the not the negative thing. So I hope that yeah, you. yeah, you're you tried. So I do hear more about the negative, but I have spoken to two golden retriever breeders who say that they don't see it. Um, I've spoken to, uh, I believe I've spoken to a, a cavalier person who said that they don't see it or that it is at least not as pronounced. And like, these are not surprising things, right? This is not surprising. What I would love, and I don't think we have, is what's the data from some of the big service dog breeding operations, like Guide Dogs for the Blind. Have they, to my knowledge, they haven't done research on this thing. And what I would love is, are they seeing it? I would love that answer. Do they see this seven to 10 week thing or do they not see it? Because they are selecting dogs to have the kind of temperament that really goes with the flow, really rolls with new stuff. When things are established as safe, they don't change their mind about it. They are what I would, what I would call optimistic. They... Right. They believe that things are going to work out fine for them. Like that's the temperament they're shooting for. That's also the temperament. And I do know, I do know that they have late onset of fear for what that's worth. Late onset of startle response. Yes. And that's something that we, um, you mentioned early, early on is the different breeds that were looked at with the onset of startle response. I would also say that my observation, um, I'll just pick on border collies because they're my breed. And I always pick on them. My observation in Border Collies is that they're, to my knowledge, it's not one of the breeds that's been deliberately researched, I don't think, in the startle response area. But I would say that their startle response is probably super early, closer to like the German Shepherds in the study. And I would also argue that their critical period is shorter. Like I would also argue that the period of time you have to make a big impact as far as what's safe and what's not is a smaller window we it is smaller in other canids than in dogs so i off the top of my head believe it's like three to five or three to six weeks in wolves versus three to 12 is average in domestic dogs so um all of that is so interesting and is still just me like rambling on about what I observe and is not real data. Um, but what I would say is that I have had many a friend 
purchase a dog for sports. I'm trying to rem- remember an instance in which it wasn't a herding breed, but I'm coming up blank. So they were always, they're mostly border collies and sometimes other herding breeds. And English Shepherd. Hmm. <laughs> one friend on this call, for instance, English Shepherd. Um, or a friend of mine who bought a border collie. And um, this is a good trainer. This is a person who was ready for this dog and she gets it and it is scared of everything. And the breeder says, well, it's a fear period. Let it go. Let it pass. Um, she's a dog trainer. So she's been educated that fear periods exist and are a thing and do pass. And so she waits and it doesn't pass and things get worse and things get worse and fear turns to aggression and this is not a slouch person this is a person really doing the best she possibly can and she winds up returning the puppy um i around maybe five months of age which was a really smart move that she was coached to do by somebody else who could give that kind of really good outside opinion that is one instance in which I'm going to say you don't get to excuse a poor temperament by saying it's a fear period. And a lot of times what I see in puppies that are kind of scared of stuff is that they just they don't have a great temperament. The rest of their life, they're kind of scared of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't like to see it. I like to see little baby puppies even past 12 weeks generally speaking optimistic about their environment optimistic about life depend you know and there's going to be variations within what's this dog and what's the environment that they live in if i look at the last two puppies i raised one was a border collie and one was an icelandic sheepdog well if you also count the june bug who was a boston terrier pug mix that's three that's (laughs) decent sample um my icelandic sheepdog remains extremely optimistic about life She did not have an observable fear period to me. What she did have was the week before her very first heat cycle, an increased reaction to known stimuli in the environment. Wouldn't we maybe call that a fear period? Um, You know, then she came into season and then she was normal again after that. So all of like, (laughs) I think I'm just going on and on, but I really feel like Fear periods are just another instance in which we, we being the dog training behavior profession, would do better to describe what we are actually seeing rather than slap a label on it and say, it's it's just this, it's fine. Would you have guidelines for how long you'd go? Like if you started seeing, you know, a sudden onset of behavior change. Would you, Will you give me an do age? the recommended thing of, well, so, well, I'm not, I'm not, yeah. So depending on age. So, okay. So, so let's say age agnostic first. Okay. You see a sudden onset behavior change. What is your recommendation? How does it depend on age and does it, and how long, like if you actually do sort of protect and coddle the dog, would you do that for a day or a week maybe? And then, and is that different by age? Any age, if there is a sudden onset severe behavior change, it is a medical problem until proven otherwise. Unfortunately, it's hard to prove it otherwise a lot of the time. So think of it like that first. And that intensifies the older the thing gets, right? So my my belief that it is medical until proven otherwise intensifies the older the thing gets. 
Um, the only age period in which I would lay low for a few days and literally not do anything are these periods that are kind of labeled as maybe fear periods. So definitely seven to ten weeks. I got Felix when he was eight weeks old. And he went through what I would describe as fear periods, potentially, multiple times up until about 14 weeks, meaning he was afraid of known stimuli for a few days at a time, and he went through it multiple times. When it happened, I laid low. I trusted him. I didn't really change his life. I just didn't try to do anything big. He still went to work with me, was exposed to things. I just didn't push it on anything. And, but meanwhile, like in those gap times when he was feeling better, like I'm implementing what I call bravery school. Like we're learning how to be brave in those interim times. So I'm still not really doing nothing. If they are right around that kind of hormone surge time, six to nine months of age, I will usually advise the owners to not panic yet (laughs) because they're probably just going through that and it's okay. And we will again take measures to lessen these responses. Because basically what people forget is that if your dog has a big response to something, they're telling you loud and clear that they can't handle the thing they're being exposed to. And so you are not smart to turn around and expose them to it again, regardless of how old they are. You always want to be smart about how you re-expose them. So, for instance, when Rhea had her preheat cycle meltdown, we were hiking on a trail. Something she's done since I took her home when she was nine weeks old. And it was a really tight, like, kind of overgrown trail. And I heard what sounded like a large group coming for us. And I there were adults yelling and there were children's sounds and there was a lot going on. So I leashed up everybody, including Raya, and kind of tried to forge my way off the path, but it was super overgrown. And then suddenly they were upon us. And it was, um, luckily, they, I thought they were yelling to get control over their dogs. They were actually yelling to get control over their children. There were no dogs. Um, and as the parents and these children go like, trampling past us very loudly Rhea was really screaming and just like big pupils and inconsolable and could not eat and she would not be quiet for it took her a long time to recover took a long time for her little heart rate to slow down and for her pupils to look normal and for her to eat again it was a big big response to just people and children who she likes And so, you know, I'm not so sage as to have not had a meltdown over this. Don't worry. I definitely freaked out. (laughs) (laughs) My dog is ruined. (laughs) Yeah. But then I said, what would you say to a client? And what I would say to a client is, how old is she? Oh, she's nine months old. Okay, well, she might be having a heat cycle soonish. Hopefully she does. And then she did about a week later. And... Would it have been wise of me to go straight back out and have her experience that again right away? No, it wouldn't. But would it have been wise of me to lock her in the attic for the next three months? Also, no. (laughs) We need to be smart about what we're doing. We need to pay attention to their responses and what they're saying they can handle. So 
I feel like I have maybe sort of answered your question, but maybe we should circle back to (laughs) what that question was. Well, so I think, I mean, I think what you're saying is anytime your dog has a big response to something, whether or not you think it's a fear period, be cautious about how you re-expose the dog. So uh, because I've listened to one or two of your podcast episodes, I'm going to guess that what you're going to say is that, you know, try to, when you re-expose the dog, increase the distance or decrease the stimulus in some other way, make it easier for the dog, right? Um, and maybe don't do that that day, but maybe in the next day or two, you could try again with a smaller stimulus and see how the dog does. Yeah, and always kind of easing back in, but paying attention to them, because this is what we do wrong, is we go, okay, I need more distance. And then three months later, you're still working on big distance. Whereas Rhea had her heat cycle. She needed to stay home for a part of that. Like, she's not going to go run amok in standing heat through the woods. Um, I am not that irresponsible. Thank you very much. But um, she just had a little bit of being kept home because of that, not because of other things. And I did stick to lower key trails anyway, during the surrounding times. And then when I was going to go back out, I was thinking, okay, I'm not going to do those super tight trails where I don't have a lot of options. I'm going to do my big wide open trails until I know she can handle that again. But I did my big wide open trails and we saw some people, we even saw people on bikes, we saw whatever. And she just kind of went, yeah, okay, I can handle that. Just like she could before that incident. And so then I don't keep her in distance land. I go, oh, okay, you can handle it. Sweet. Let's go back to handling it then. Do you even call that a fear period? So are you describing just one incident, which was a very surprising incident? Jessica, it would have been... happen again? It, it would have been multiple incidents if I lived in a different situation where she had to be exposed to things like that, I believe. Got it. But Got it. also, that is what people describe the baby fear period as, the seven to ten weeks. They describe it as... Very acute, very much happens and then is over. So why wouldn't the nine-month-old one also look Mm -hmm. that way if these are the same thing, if we are talking about the same thing, which I kind of don't think we are. Yeah. So, and yeah, if I lived in suburbia and like, or worse, if I lived in like an apartment and I needed to walk her on leash around people that whole time, I probably would have seen multiple different reactions and responses. Yeah. All right. Not ideal. We all have to kind of work with what we have. Um, so I don't know. Did we get anywhere <laughs> in this yeah, conversation? I think, well, I mean, I think <laughs> I think there's some very straightforward advice, which is it's it's not a good idea to totally cocoon your dog, but it's also not a good idea to overwhelm your dog. You should pay attention to what your dog is telling you, and sometimes that may acutely what they can handle may acutely change and you need to acutely adapt. Yes. And also, sorry to interject. No, go. Something, something that I think I maybe left out again, because in my story, I can, I have a lot of control over the antecedents. I don't have to go put her on that tight trail again. I don't have to even walk her in suburbia. Like she can be exposed to things that I choose for her. Because I have basically designed my life to look like that for my dogs. And probably for me. Let's say, though, that I did live, like, in downtown Seattle. And I was raising same puppy. If I'm seeing these repeated issues, 
I might be advised that it's just a developmental fear period or just a developmental period and it will go away and it's okay. And I still think that's bad advice because if my puppy has to be exposed to these things and is going to have these repeated big responses, this is where, in my opinion, pharmaceutical intervention is wise. Go talk to your veterinary behaviorist. Because what is pharmaceutical intervention for? In my opinion, it's to reduce suffering. And so this is suffering. If this puppy has to go and have these huge, huge responses every single day, I don't care that it, in theory, is going to be better in three months. In those three months, we're going to do irreparable damage, potentially. And, you know, people have different opinions on medications for puppies, and I'm not a veterinarian. That's where I set up that triangular relationship so that we can say, if it's my client, and say, this is what we're experiencing, this is what's going on. My veterinary behaviorist, who I work really closely with, would absolutely agree that this is a time then again for that pharmaceutical intervention because you can't prevent the problem. You can't prevent rehearsal of the problem. You need to lessen how how big the problem is going to impact um, the puppy and their growing experiences. So I think we're doing a disservice to say, well, it's a fear period. It will get better. You don't need a veterinary behaviorist. I'm going to say, no, actually you do because in the time that you're waiting for it to get better, you still have to expose the puppy to the thing. Yeah, so I think I would say sudden and unexpected response, try to reduce the stimulus. If you can't reduce the stimulus to a point where the puppy can handle it, then it's time to seek out help. Yeah. And, it's time to and seek if out you help. can reduce the stimulus by keep it like by if you're thinking, well, I can just keep the dog in the house. Also remember the dog also needs to have a fairly normal life. Yeah, and also that can only be your intervention for a couple of weeks tops. Like you let this play its course for a couple of weeks tops. If it's still a problem for you, get help, get some help. And it doesn't matter if your puppy is eight weeks old or eight months old. All of this advice is still the same from me as far as now when they're younger, now you might be more in a situation like my friend was in where she decides that this is not the puppy she signed up for. And I, you know, that's probably a whole other conversation of of that. But if you if you did obtain the puppy from a breeder who is supportive and a good breeder, then that's a conversation you can have with the breeder as far as I've even seen situations where the puppy went back just for a while and then was placed in another home and did fantastic. Or even was sent back to the original home and did fantastic once whatever this thing was, was through. In the instance of a friend who breeds Australian Shepherds, um, sometimes her puppies who live in like dog paradise on a ranch really struggle with city life or suburbia. That's just real. That's just real. So is a puppy return in that case bad? Or is a puppy just go back and have vacation on the farm while, while your brain is still really sensitive to everything that's going on? Bad? You know, it depends. Has that worked out for you in the past? Like, it's, there are no one-size-fits-all answers. And I think the problem with labeling things a fear period makes it sound like there is. It makes it sound like it's this mm. mystical thing that happens where they're just scared for a minute. And then, and then they get better and then they're not anymore. And that is simply not my experience. Yes, I like that. So it's not that there's not an event. 
it's that the event is still something that we need to to take action on and it's deal still with. your responsibility and it's also potentially about the environment more than it is about or or where the environment and the biology meet rather than I think calling it a fear period makes it sound like it's purely biological and it's just going to happen no matter what. Yeah, there's a switch that gets flipped, right? Yes, yeah. Whereas, you know, like I said, if Rhea were raised in a completely different situation, I think she might look really different from how she looks right now. And she would still have her same genetic makeup. And her relatives who live, um, you know, on acreage and like don't don't really go places a whole lot are really sound, really stable, doing a great job and can go places once they're grown ups and like through it. So I think, no, it's not that it's fake. It's that we need to it's not that fear periods are fake, which is something that I tongue in cheek mentioned to you when we first talked about this. Um it is that they don't have a clear definition, so we need to be aware of that. And it's also that they don't – that label does not then get you out of jail free in a couple months. Like, it'll just be over. That's just not how things work. Because in that entire time, experiences are happening, behaviors are being reinforced or punished, and – the the puppy or the dog is is growing and developing and we need to be smart about that and just to bring it back around to my particular area of interest please i'm interested in how you mentioned that these events seem to happen in some breeds but not other breeds Mm -hmm. and i also don't want us to think of this as something mystical that is attached to particular breeds that there's a rule that this particular breed is going to happen at this age But I would like us to think of it as something that it is, you know, the genetics and the rise in some hormones and the particular environmental stimulus is all coming together. And the genetics is something you can affect. And so if you're seeing that there's a lot of these events in your dogs and you're trying to breed dogs to be good companions, really stable, resilient dogs then that might be something to take into account as you're making your breeding decisions to try to breed away from dogs having these events. Yeah, and I don't think that we can say, I certainly don't think we can say, well, Border Collies experienced this because Border Collie, of course we can't, but also huge, vast breed. Really did, right. So what I've seen is like one Australian shepherd breeder says it happens at this point. Another Australian shepherd breeder I know says that hers don't even have one. They don't have a puppy fear period. She doesn't see it if it does happen. Um, And it's, it maybe is a screening question if you're choosing breeding candidates in your line. Like if if you're selecting a stud dog to bring into your breeding operation and you say to that to the owner of the stud dog or the breeder of the stud dog even better you say in your line talk to me about fear periods i think you'd get a ton of information because they'd say well my puppies generally do this to define it first (laughs) see i feel like you shouldn't because i feel like you should just let people talk in Mm. that situation you're gonna get more information if you just let people talk if you just say 
what can I expect in terms of fear periods from a breeder about their line? You're going to get a lot of information about how rocky is this line of dogs adolescent period. Because what I've kind of described to people is that generally speaking, I think that the dogs that I like best, the dogs who I like best for sports, who tend to be kind of edgy, kind of sharp, go through rocky adolescent periods. They're difficult until they're like three years old. And I think that's true in a lot of situations. And so maybe that's a trade-off I select. But yes, if you're breeding dogs that are going to be easier keepers for people, nice sports light pet type of animals, you maybe want to be asking that question. Because even just looking in my sample size of Border Collies, the ones that went through rocky adolescent periods, the ones who had what I would call observable fear periods, are the dogs that have a harder time as adults also. The ones that I don't think went through observable fear periods um, are the ones that I see as fairly unflappable as adults as well. I think that's related. I think that's a totally other tangent we could go down. I think that's related. I would love for that to be looked at. Um, but then also, <laughs> can you even know anything? Because if if I put Rhea in a totally different environment, I'd say her adolescence would have been hell. But in my environment, it wasn't. It was pretty easy. No, but what you well, in that case, you need a larger sample size. Yeah. So if only we had a database where we could collect information from breeders <laughs> and from owners and we could put all that information together and owners would report if back. Only. I saw a fear period if and this only. is what it looked like. The breeders could look at that and think about, do I want to breed to these lines? Wouldn't it be great? If only. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah, if, only. <laughs> if only. We'll talk about that some other time. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> all right. This has been fabulous. It's been super fun as always. Hopefully we... I t- stayed on topic enough for the the, Until the my collective respective audiences. Yeah. Until my dive into <laughs> you, placentas. As you but, do, uh, you're always you're always diving into placentas. That's that's how I that's how I roll. <laughs> All right. This has been great. All right. Until next time. <laughs> Until next time. Signing off. Hey friends. Some of you have asked how to support the podcast, so we have set up a Patreon page for it. For a small monthly pledge, you help us pay for producing this podcast, and in exchange, you get a chance to suggest questions for podcast guests, and you get early access to podcast episodes. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash functionalbreeding. You can also help promote the podcast through subscribing to it through the podcast app of your choice and by leaving favorable reviews. If you're interested in supporting the Functional Dog Collaborative more generally, or finding ways to get involved, go to the functionalbreeding.org website and click the support link. Thanks to everyone who has helped out. We could not do this without you. Thanks so much for listening. The Functional Breeding Podcast is a product of the Functional Dog Collaborative and was produced by Attila Merton. Come join us at the Functional Breeding Facebook group to talk about this episode or about responsible breeding practices in general. To learn more about the FDC, check out the functionalbreeding.org website. Enjoy your dogs.